you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, January 6th, 2022. This is episode number 188. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 21,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. Today, we are talking about Connecticut and equity. Quebec considering selling cannabis and alcohol only to the vaccinated. Gary Vanderchuk launching a cannabis festival. What you need to know about marketing through the USPS. The NFL and a Cowboys drug test suspension. The rise of the small farmers in New York. And many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Her superpowers are overcoming obstacles and challenges with unstoppable energy. She's also an amazing daughter, friend, and activist. What's your headline today, Nicole? Well, thank you so much. Today I'm filling in for Laura DeCaro. Um, we miss you, Laura. Laura, um, and my headline's actually coming out of Ganjapreneur, and it's Connecticut, as Jason likes to pronounce it. Connecticut approves cannabis social equity rules just in time to accept the industry licensing applications. The Connecticut Department of Consumer Protection has approved the state social equity rules for the cannabis industry and the agency to set up and begin accepting many industry license applications over the next month, the Hartford Current reports. The Social Equity Council approved a workforce development plan, proof of residency, income requirements, ownership control, and other equity-focused rules and regulations. The 56 first-round licensees will be evenly split among social equity and general licensees and are available retailers, micro-cultivators, delivery services, food and beverage businesses, manufacturers, and transporters. The social equity licensees, hopefuls, will have a one-time 90-day application period beginning on February 3rd and ending on May 4th. 
Under the plan, social equity applicants are defined as a business seeking a cannabis license that is at least 65% owned and controlled by an individual or individuals who have an average household income of less than 300% of the state's median household income, which is about $74,000 in 2021 over three years. The Department of Consumer Protection will schedule several lotteries for the remaining licensees and expects the second licensing round in the second half of the year. Applicants selected for the social equity licensee are subject to be reviewed by the Social Equity Council. In November, Workforce Economic Development Organizations and Connecticut Community Outreach Revitalization Program and the Workplace Announcement, uh, the creation of the Alliance for Cannabis Equity, or ACE, which will focus on social equity and the economic opportunities for black and brown entrepreneurs and minority workers throughout the state's cannabis industry. State lawmakers approved the reforms last year as a part of the law, including possession by adults that took effect on July 1st, 2021. Officials had expected retail sales would be Again, sometime this year. However, in September, the commissioner and the Department of Consumer Protection uh, has indicated the rollout could be delayed up to 2023. Now, I definitely want to say good job for having something, Connecticut, but the fact that the only part of your social equity program is uh, income is really you know, as we talk about often, is really missing the mark, um, what we're having the conversation about in regards to social equity and giving back to the BIPOC of black and brown communities um, for continuously being uh, targeted on this war on drugs for cannabis um, is being missed completely here in Connecticut. Um, they are literally only utilizing the income as a part of this process, which I think you know is valid in the conversation of you know uh, social disparity based on socioeconomics. However, I really genuinely do believe that they need to push back a little bit harder in Connecticut and get a little bit more opportunity for people of color in this process. Um, and I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I hope there's someone in the audience from Connecticut. If you are, please raise your hand. It really seems that New England is struggling with social equity. I don't know if it comes as a surprise to anybody, but they're hurting over there. What do you mean California's struggling with it? L.A. is struggling with it. Yeah. Social equity. It's some bullshit. <laughs> when um, uh, Maryland went through, I know, I know the Maryland program was still a fucking disaster, um, but I really was appreciative of the point system that Maryland had in regards to social equity, right? It, it was, you know, if you were a person of color, there was a point. If you were a woman who was also a person of color, there was two points. Um, if you were a disabled woman of color, there was three points. Um, and so there was opportunities for your level of equity needs to be taken into consideration. And I know Maryland kind of did a shitty job of their rollout in the big picture, um, but real life, I do know, and I worked with one of the social equity applicants that was a black woman-owned business, and I was really proud to say that they did a great job getting through the process, and they are one of the licensed facilities there. So um, I hope that that sort of thing can be looked at in a bigger picture. Uh, you're, um, you're 100% right. Um, when they first rolled out, I have to check in with my people over there and see how it's mapped out since. But um, yeah, Maryland was doing a good job in the beginning. I have to say that. Thank you for that headline, Nicole. We're going to keep rocking and rolling because we have got a lot of news today. So up next, uh, Rico, are you ready to go? It sounds like you're driving. Yeah, I'm pulling into my driveway right now. So I'm good to go. So, got my everything ready. All right. 
All right, up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is also a superstar at cracking dad jokes and just dropped off his baby girl for her first day at daycare. That's a rough day, Rico. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline, Rico? Uh, yeah, it's a sad day, but got to get through it. <laughs> so mine uh, comes out of the um, uh, Points Guy travel blog from Caroline uh, Tanner. So you may soon need to be vaccinated to buy liquor and cannabis in Quebec. That's Canada. So it's been nearly 20 years since B2K has had a hit. But for some reason, 2021 and COVID-19 has given Omarion permission to one, two step his way back into our lives, fucking up North American progress. And it seems Quebec will be having no part in reviving the variant's career. I'm talking about the Omaricron, Omicron, whatever it is. So according to Caroline Tanner, the popular travel blog, The Points Guy, local news outlets in Quebec, Canada have reported officials are considering requiring vaccine passports to buy liquor and cannabis. Uh, the Quebec government has not officially confirmed uh, the proposed measure, but details are expected to be released this week, adding alcohol and cannabis businesses to the province's existing COVID-19 protocols in the wake of the Omicron variant. The city of Montreal declared a state of emergency late December due to rising case numbers, and vaccination passport has been required since September 2021 for ages 13 and older to access all non-essential businesses throughout the uh, province. This includes bars, restaurants, casinos, places of worship, and, and sports facilities. It's expected this week vaccine passport requirements will officially be applied to anyone buying alcohol at Société de Alcous de Québec, SAQ, or cannabis produ- products at Société Québécois de, uh, du Cannabis, SQDC. And if you stop worrying about my terrible enunciation of both entities for just a second there, I'd advise you to focus on this. With over 400 stores, SAQ is the only liquor distributor in Quebec, uh, and SQDC is the only non-medical legal seller in the province as well. That's right. If y'all don't need liquor or weed for medical reasons, either you get jabbed or consider reaching out to your friendly neighborhood trap dealer. According to SAQ spokeswoman, uh, spokesperson Linda Bouchard, SAQ has discussed the issue with the government, and if the authorities move in this direction, we will apply this measure. Uh, the article also points out that last week the Prime Minister of Quebec um, temporarily closed indoor dining, announced a 10 p.m. curfew, and limited private liquor gatherings to those within the same household. They didn't stop there. Non-essential businesses are closed on Sundays, and indoor sports are suspended. In a statement on December 30th, uh, the Prime Minister, Francois Legault, uh, said that the contagion is disabling our society. Uh, we simply cannot continue to go this way. We must make major change of direction to slow the contagion and do everything uh, to restrict transmission. Fully vaccinated travelers from the U.S. are currently able to go to Canada, um, but you have to have a negative COVID-19 test within 72 hours to go there. So look, this Omicron shit is running, is ruining everybody's winter right now. The Grammys just got canceled. I get it. And unlike some people that I know, I'm not one of the people that's calling every attempt to contain this shit tyranny or throwing out a bunch of misinformative conspiracy theories either. But I may entertain them a little bit for good fun, but I'm not spreading any of it, I promise. Uh, but, uh, but not allowing folks to buy liquor and weed in the dead of winter without getting vaccinated does seem a little bit extreme in my own opinion. But hey, what is it? I'm, right. I just have to. I, 
I just have to say, bro, this sounds like fucking Nazi Germany, fucking 2.0. <laughs> no, it okay. does not. Straight up. It does not yeah, sound yeah, like it does. Nazi and let me Germany. Tell you something. In, in, in Quebec, if they sold air, they would probably charge you for that, too, and make sure that you're vaccinated. <laughs> it does not sound like Nazi Germany. <laughs> What's the rest of the team? What do you, what are you guys thinking about this? They are saying, little... show me your papers. Thank you. <laughs> Get a fucking shot. <laughs> it's not Nazi virus. It's not Nazi Germany, though. Come on. There's a false equivalency. No, bullshit. Yeah, that's... Oh, my God. Nazi Germany. Really? You're going to go there? I, yeah. I, I am going to go there. When you're telling people that, that, that they can't commence commerce unless they're vaccinated, when um, this, this vaccination isn't even... Um, you you have no the pharmaceutical companies have zero liability for any type of negative recourse that happens to your body. Okay, it's an experimental vaccine. You, the FDA says it takes at least five years to make a vaccine. So all case, right, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut this off. We got to keep moving. This is nothing. We're gonna we're gonna move on. We've got a busy day. Uh, let's keep smoking the news. Blame Canada. Next up, we have Liz Rogan. Liz Rogan is the cannabis educator, brand strategist, and the healthcare consultant and founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. What do you have for us today, Liz? Thank you, Nicole. Happy Thursday, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My story comes from MJ Biz Daily by Kate Robertson. The headline reads, what cannabis companies should know about using mailers as a marketing tool. And I suggest anyone who is interested in this to click on the link above because there is a graphic that's right at the top that's very helpful in summarizing all of this. But this story itself uh, is about cannabis advertising via direct mailers, and it begins with the focus on Cornbread Hemp, who's out of Kentucky. The company itself has used direct mailings multiple times, but new mailing actually quantified the THC in milligrams versus the percentage. And this has caused a lot of attention. Basically, a bottle containing 1,500 milligrams of CBD and 0.3% THC, which isn't a controlled substance, uh, was sent out in a flyer to their customers saying two milligrams of THC per package was in this. So they showed that they had a huge... um, Huge reaction. Some of it pro, some of it con. Uh, a lot of people were concerned that there's actually THC in it and it's being mailed. Um, other people thought that was great that they could have THC and weren't aware of that, really were aware that it was in there. So basically this shows that despite the growing acceptance of CBD and increasing number of states legalizing cannabis, THC is still very taboo and especially including on any flyers or marketing campaigns. The laws by locality vary and they're murky. Uh, the U.S. Postal Service Um, says that the rules are clear when it comes to marketing cannabis products in the mail and, quote, under current federal law, it is unlawful to place any written advertisements in any newspaper, magazine, handbill, or other publications for the purpose of seeking or offering illegally to receive, buy, or distribute Schedule One controlled substance, including marijuana. Um, But the 2018 Farm Bill removed hemp from the Controlled Substances Act, uh, but marijuana itself is still a drug. Cornbread, cornbread hemp's compliance team did approve this, and they recommend seeking written approval from the Postal Service. Um, they also recommend uh, seeking approval from the BC or your local cannabis um, uh, control board. Um, and essentially, they suggest that it's best practice to um, stay away from the do not uh, contact list. Also, target only 
um, adults or households without children uh, or children over 25. Um, they also recommend uh, printing out sample that flyer and make sure that all legal advisors approve. And on the compliance side, it does help them because it's easy to show us to addresses and demographic info, which you don't get from billboards and other things. So um, basically looking at the return on investment, um, they're it's hard to say because overall mailing campaigns without huge marketing uh, campaigns tied to them aren't very successful as they are costly. But Cornbread says they're stoked about this THC forward messaging and they are going to keep doing it. They say, quote, we see ourselves as a cannabis brand operating on the legal hemp side of the dividing wall that's arbitrary and artificial created by Congress. And it's still the plant. The only difference is THC. So we're leaning into that. That way we can offer direct to consumer. And he say, they're saying it's something no cannabis brand that's locked in state legal system can do. So I find that this is kind of uh, interesting. I think it's great information for consumers, but also kind of not fair as somebody who's worked in the cannabis industry for a long time. Um, so I feel like they're kind of advertising something that is obviously there, but seems like I don't know. Anyway, this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. And what do you guys think about this? Thanks for covering this, Liz. I saw this article and um, I I think it's really important. I was curious, uh, our audience and uh, those of us on the stage, how many of y'all are um, advertising through d- direct mail? Raise your hand if you're advertising your cannabis brand through the direct mail. It just seems awfully expensive. I know my dad gets something about CBD. My dad just turned 93. He gets something about CBD almost every day. And it's really confusing to him. But we've got Amber Plaster up from the audience. Amber, did you want to weigh in on Liz's headline? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, Hey guys, my name's Amber. I I work in marketing for a cannabis company in California. And we've been really considering doing these mailers because when we open up a new store, it's really hard, as you know, to advertise anywhere. It's just almost impossible. And so I'm like, what about these mailers? I just got a mailer from Ease at my house in Culver City. And I was like, I thought these were illegal. I thought we couldn't do this. And I took it into work and I'm like, are we allowed to do mailers? You know? Um, So uh, my question is, this was my thought was for the people that have come into our dispensaries and signed the, uh, we can send you text messages for deals and things, you know, that sort of sign off. We, you sign off that you're over 21 can we send them mail? Because that was my strategy to the ones that already allowed it, because it sounds a little bit dangerous. The only way that you would be able to properly send mail in the state of California is if you could prove that 71.6% of the household is over the age of 12. And so at that point, you would need to have a household demographic and be able to prove that the chances of the person getting it are less than, uh, what is that, 20, uh, 28.4%. Or, yeah, 28.4, because it has to be 71.6. Um, so the only way that you could legally do that is if you could prove that that percent chance of somebody getting that mailer. Thank you, Nicole. We've got Michael Clorin up from the audience. I'm rolling dice. Mike, Michael, we are at time, but uh, you've got 20 seconds to weigh in on Liz's headline. Going, going, you're muted. All right, let's keep smoking the news. All right. So up next, she was named the top 25 women in cannabis making history, and she's also the CEO of award-winning Original Breeders League. Has one more golden bong than me, than you, and then every influencer that you know. 
Up next is the illustrious Priscilla Agoncillo coming straight out of Michigan. What you got for us this morning, P? Thank you so much, Rico. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my story and headline is Rise of the Farmers. Small New York group becomes a cannabis power player. The New York Cannabis Growers and Processors Association consisted of five people and one paid lobbyist when it formed about three years ago. Today, the association stands about 250 members, according to the group, and its board members point to several accomplishments within the state's cannabis legalization law as evidence of its increasing clout in Albany. Now, as state officials set policy for New York's forthcoming legal adult use cannabis industry, a primary goal for the NYCGPA is to make sure that small to mid sized cannabis companies aren't derailed by overregulation or unfair competition against the large multi state companies currently supplying the state's medical cannabis program. The legislators appear to be listening to them. The group's primary goal when it began um, lobbying state lawmakers was to ensure that CBD remained a legal additive for food, drinks, and other products, but members were obviously positioning themselves for, to advocate for adult-use cannabis. Uh, while meeting with state legislators both directly and through their lobbyists, the inaugural association members started building their coalition by reaching out to other hemp businesses around the state. The association, which had mainly focused on cultivators, also expanded its purview to include cannabis retailers. So the base of our agenda when it comes to advocacy is to not overregulate this, uh, Cass Stetter, a board member of the organization, said. When you overregulate it, you are incentivizing economies of scale, i.e. the big players and really only allowing room for them. The group also wants to make sure that the state's 10 registered medical mar marijuana operators do not get a head start over smaller businesses. The NYCGPA isn't the only group currently advocating for cannabis businesses in the Empire State. There's the New York City Cannabis Industry Association, Hudson Valley Cannabis Industry Association, and the New York Medical Cannabis Industry Association. These legislative and growth strategies prove effective, and the group successfully pressed legislators to lower tax rates imposed on cannabis companies and include distressed farmers as a qualification for social equity status. I'm very excited to announce that the state of cannabis will be interviewing the principal of DASNY, who championed the recent approved social equity fund. His name is Ruben McDaniel. Uh, he'll specifically cover New York's plan on how they will apply the social equity fund for the cultivation facet of the cannabis industry. So stay tuned for the date and time on that. This is Priscilla reporting on the latest and greatest for the SFC NewsHour. Why couldn't the California farmers get it together like this? Uh, we have the Origins Council, and the Origins Council, led by Janine Coleman, is super active on the state level. And, and all the way down. And what they're doing right now is pretty amazing. So I would encourage everyone to check out what they're doing here in California. Do we have any farmers from New York in the audience? Please raise your hand. Well, I know that up north they have started to allow some of the hemp farmers to um, work with uh, cannabis plants in preparation uh, for uh, what they're going to be rolling out in New York. So there are some that have not necessarily pre-approval, but they, uh, they're, they're pretty much allowed to be ready to go once the green light hits. So uh, it's interesting what they're doing. Social equity is at the forefront of the entire cannabis industry as they're proposing it in New York. Uh, so I'm very excited to hear also what Gretchen's going to be reporting. I it's think very cool. It's very cool here, Priscilla. That's awesome, though. 
Thanks for bringing the story, Priscilla. I, when I just read the headline, it's it's encouraging because I feel sometimes, like at least in California, we start to feel very disheartened. So it, it kind of gives me a little hope that small companies and, and mid-sized companies will be able to stay in the market and will be healthy. Thank you. Well, you know, one other thing I should add that we're doing here in California that maybe will spread to other states is there's a blockchain initiative that's really important. It's, um, it's sort of an NDA situation, but it's going to be very powerful for small farmers. Um, so that's something that's in the works as well. David, did you want to weigh in? We're, we're at time, so you've got 20 seconds. Sure. Uh, 20 seconds. It's tight. Uh, great to be on. Thank you. Uh, the, New York, uh, the, the New York news is very encouraging. I agree. Um, I don't believe that cannabis companies, uh, hemp companies are allowed to grow any cannabis yet. Um, I think that it was a proposal by one of the senators to allow cultivators to get a head start on the industry so that this way when the other licenses come up, manufacturing and retail, that there, there will be product available. And then as you pointed out, this way it would prevent the 10 um, uh, registered organizations from having a, a, a control over the industry. Uh, but yeah, it's very encouraging. New York is moving very quickly. I think in terms of the ability to get licenses, um, out of any state application that I've been involved in, and I was involved in New York's previously, we won one of the 10 licenses here. I think this upcoming round is actually, appears to be very structured to be equitable, that it will be avail very, very feasible to be able to get properties that are compliant with the law, um, and that they're going to make the the expenses related to applying for these licenses very reasonable. Um, just in general. And then even more so now that they're talking about providing, I think it's a $200 million fund to support uh, social equity businesses in New York is going to look even better. Amazing. Thank you so much for that uh, comment, David, and that headline, Priscilla. Um, it's actually going to perfectly dovetail into our next correspondent, Ms. Gretchen Gailey. Gretchen is the founder of Panoptic Strategies and a Washington insider. What do you have for us today, Gretchen? Uh, good afternoon, Nicole. My headline comes from Marijuana Moment, uh, and it goes a bit more into what's going on with the fund. Uh, New York governor announces $200 million marijuana fund to promote industry equity. The governor of New York says her administration is creating a $200 million public-private fund to specifically help promote social equity in the state's burgeoning marijuana market. Governor Kathy Hochul released an extensive state-of-the-state book on Wednesday detailing policies she will pursue in 2022, and promoting equity and economic justice in the cannabis industry is one of those objectives. The document also discusses efforts to support broader harm reduction drug policies and the state's hemp market. The governor said that while marijuana business licenses have yet to be approved since legalization was signed into law last year, the market stands to generate billions of dollars, and it's important to, quote, create opportunities for all New Yorkers, particularly those from historically marginalized communities. In support of that goal, Governor Hochul will create a $200 million public-private fund to support social equity applicants as they plan for and build out their businesses. Licensing fees and tax revenue will see the fund and leverage significant private investment. Uh, the document goes on to say, uh, while New York has committed to making its cannabis industry more equitable, this action will put that commitment into practice. New York will lead where many other states have fallen short. The governor is focused on providing more than the basic business supports and training for our future cannabis entrepreneurs, and this fund will provide direct capital and startup financing to social equity applicants as the state takes meaningful steps 
to ensuring that New York's cannabis industry is the most diverse and inclusive in the nation. New York has a goal of issuing at least 50% of cannabis business licenses to social equity applicants, including people from communities disproportionately impacted by criminalization, distressed farmers, and women and veterans-owned companies. Hochul said the newly announced fund will help New York achieve that goal. Together, these actions will help ensure that as New York cannabis industry thrives in the year ahead, more New Yorkers can reap the rewards. Uh, when it comes to hemp, the administration talked about how the state agriculture department has developed program regulations to add clarity and certainty for hemp growers and added program staff to better serve the regulated uh, community. Regulators will also support compliance with federal requirements on hemp sampling and testing by training and certifying private sampling agents to take regulatory samples, ensuring compliance with the federal standard for hemp of not more than 0.3% THC. The industry also announced that it will be forming a working group comprised of state, federal, and industry stakeholders who will focus on workforce development and training needs, sampling and testing, and research and market opportunities for hemp, grain, and fiber. Uh, New York will also be creating a new division of harm reduction within the Office of Addiction Services and Support in order to develop and incorporate harm reduction principles and strategies. That includes expanding access to Naxalone and uh, buprenorphine I'm sorry, I'm not great with the drug names, investing in fentanyl test strips, uh, promoting public education, and increasing the availability of sterile uh, syringes. Uh, while the document doesn't explicitly mention safe consumption sites where people could currently uh, use illicit drugs in a medically supervised environment, New York City did recently become the first jurisdiction in the U.S. to sanction such services, and health officials say they are already saving lives. Um, I think this is a good move for New York. We will see if it is helpful. Um, I think the best thing that can come out of this funding for social equity applicants is really going to be the training and support uh, that they continue to provide to them. Um, there's no point in giving folks a license if they don't have the background or the abilities uh, to keep it. Uh, so we need folks who get these licenses to not be taken advantage of uh, by bigger major corporations coming in and trying to take loopholes and get uh, take over these businesses. Um, and if they can provide direct capital and startup financing, um, that is also a necessary first step. We, we shall see if this uh, program really works. This is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm super excited to hear about the opportunity uh, of funding, um, but I do want to make sure that I make mention that everybody that is providing services in this cannabis industry, um, anyone who's in this space should be considering having a rate specific for people in the way of social equity so that we can all be giving back and all be being a part of this, not just expecting the government to do the handouts. We all need to be in this together. So if you're a services provider, whatever that service is in cannabis, you should be thinking what your social equity rate would be. Amen, Nicole. Thank you so much. We've reached the 30-minute point, so we're going to go ahead and relight this room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. Known to some as Kaiser Brose, he's now a bi-coastal snowbird, splitting time between frigid West Hollywood and his winter home in Mar-a-Lago, Florida. When the cannabis industry's longest continuous-running retailer is 
uh, smoking the greatest weed in the world. He's also known for fighting off cottonmouth, drinking liberal tears from non-recyclable BPA water bottles. Up next, <laughs> it's Jason Beck. Oh, yeah. Good morning, Rico. Good morning, everybody. Hope everyone's having a fantastic first week of the new year. My story today comes out of Mississippi, where Hoseman fires back at Reeves regarding medical marijuana. Last week, Governor Tate Reeves went to social media to say that he will not sign a medical marijuana bill unless the proposed one-day medical dosage unit is cut in half. Call me crazy, but I just think that, that that's too broad of a starting point, he, he wrote in a lengthy Facebook post. I'm asking the legislature to simply cut that amount in half to start the program. Also, in the, in the past, Reeves stated that, uh, that, that the one-day medical dosage unit of, one, of three and a half grams or one-eighth would equal out to 11 joints. And I don't know who was consulting on him on this, but I know when I roll up an eighth, I get anywhere from three to four joints. On Tuesday, the first day of 2022, Mississippi Legislative Session, Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman explained that the governor's scale is incorrect. They've informed me that it's not 11 joints, Hoseman said. Nothing that the Senate Public Health Committee will soon test out the, the measurements. It depends on how much weed you put inside the rolled up paper. But if you did 11, according to the people that, uh, that, that we talked to, it would mostly be paper. And I have to say that is 100% right, the straight pinheads. In November of 2020, 74% of Mississippians voted to approve the Initiative 65, a grassroots initiative sprung from the Medical Marijuana 2020 campaign. While Hoseman was not a supporter of Initiative 65, he does feel that numbers speak for themselves. Over 70% voted to have medical uh, cannabis, so I think that's that's a mandate for the Senate and the House to address medical cannabis, he said. Initiative 65 was eventually shot down by the Mississippi Supreme Court a few months later. Senate and House leadership agreed upon a medical marijuana bill and informed the governor that they were ready for a special session, a special never called now and the senate will work off of their most recent draft which would allow cities and counties to opt out if they choose it would place the state's current seven percent sales tax on cannabis purchases and it would also place a limitation on thc potency we're probably up to about 30 drafts now hoseman said i've been convinced that we need this for the people who are dying here hoseman also voiced that the current draft is a tighter bill than than most to all of the 37 states where medical cannabis is legal lawmakers will give it a gavel on at noon on tuesday of next week so we will stay we will see what's happening in mississippi all that i know is that i want to go onto a riverboat casino and burn the best weed in the world and this is jason beck reporting for the state of cannabis news hour be burning paper in mississippi I, it just blows my mind that these fucking guys that run everything are just so clueless and will no problem give you a 30 60 day supply of opioids but god forbid you get three and a half grams of flour all right dad joke okay. reeves needs to be hosed man <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed sorry i had to <laughs> Greg, what's that song, that Nina Simone song, uh, Mississippi Goddamn? I mean, really, this is 1861. Oh, the cannabis industry lobbying efforts needs more money. That's, that's what it, where it needs to go. They need more money to get these guys on board. That's all that talks. That's the only language that they understand. 
it's so frustrating when we talk about cannabis lobbying too, just because everyone has their own agendas. And once we get everyone in a room and we're like, well, this is what we're trying to, to vote towards, it ends up dis, you know, disbanding these groups of people that come together because people have different agendas. And, you know, there, there is cannabis lobbying happening, but we haven't been doing it collectively. Like, you know, Jason always mentions the nail polish industry. The nail polish industry is strong as buck when it comes to their lobbying and they stay together and they push these agendas and they do, you know, different types of, um, uh, voting internally to see what they're going to be pushing towards. And I, I think cannabis just needs to get a little bit more organized and democratic on the back end so we could push a unified message. Lobbyists. Yes. Cuticles. Lobbyists. Yes. But what about his staffers? Why aren't they, you know, helping this poor old guy out? He looks like an idiot. Well, a lot of times, too, they, they will be educated by people who are prohibitionists as well, and they come up with these uh, ridiculous narratives. But didn't you say it was in Mississippi? Mississippi. Yeah, that's why. That's why. Because there's a lot. It's, it, he's not alone, Susan. <laughs> he's surrounded by prohibitionists. Other people that are, are hype-beasting him in the corner. Ah, well, thank you so much for that headline, Jason. We're going to go ahead and jump to our next correspondent. Our next correspondent is Minika Mahajan. She's a pot-smoking PhD and the cannabis policy consultant. What do you have for us today, Minika? Good morning. Thank you so much, Nicole. Yesterday, I talked about how Montana's first weekend of adult-use cannabis pulled in over $1.5 million in sales and over $300,000 in tax revenue which was exciting news for the licensees and the state government. But today I want to balance that news out by covering the patient angle. My story comes from Justin Franz of the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, and the headline reads, Montana medical cannabis users brace for shortages as recreational market opens. Now that anyone <clears throat> excuse me, older than 21 can enter a dispensary and buy cannabis, some medical users are worried about price and supply. There are about 55,000 Montanans who hold cards to get cannabis for cancer, glaucoma, Crohn's disease, central nervous system disorders, and other, uh, other ailments. And the question for them is how recreational sales will affect their access to medicine. We've seen shortages in other states soon after their recreational marijuana markets opened. And in January 2020, when recreational pot uh, cannabis became legal in Illinois, some dispensaries had to close their doors or impose limits on purchases. Same thing happened in Colorado and Washington. Pepper Peterson, president and CEO of the Montana Cannabis Guild and a medical provider in Helena, says he's been telling his patients to stock up because he thinks that the state's dispensaries will run out of pot in the short term. Quote, we're going to have cannabis shortages. Access will be a problem until the until supply can catch up with demand. How can we produce enough product for thousands of new users in January? The answer is we can't. For patients on a fixed income, stocking up just isn't even an option. And furthermore, Montana has restricted who can sell cannabis initially. Existing dispensaries have an 18-month head start on new producers who will have to wait until July of 2023 to get into the market. That's about a year and a half from now. That means medical cannabis customers will compete with recreational users for a limited supply of cannabis. Some states that have legalized rec cannabis, such as New Jersey and Illinois, require retailers to maintain enough stock for medical users' needs. Montana doesn't have this rule. And most dispensaries in the state of Montana will serve both categories of users or only recreational users. Meanwhile, only 18%, which represents about 80 of Montana's 451 licensed dispensaries, 
plan to exclusively serve medical cardholders, according to a spokesperson for the Montana Department of Revenue, who also said that of those 80 dispensaries, quote, we believe the medical-only establishments are the safeguard for ensuring medical marijuana is available to registered cardholders. I'm very curious about whether this will turn out to be the case. Some dispensary owners uh, have meanwhile said that they would reserve some supplies for medical customers or switch to exclusively serving them if needed. Barbie to... Barbie Turner, a dispensary co-owner with multiple locations, said, quote, not only do our medical patients have a need, they're the ones who built up these businesses. They're the ones who built this industry. So I think we have an ethical responsibility to take care of them, just like they have taken care of us. But others say they don't plan on holding back, arguing that it would be bad for business. Research suggests that cannabis is pretty popular among Montana adults. And so there might be a pretty high demand for adult-use cannabis in that state. A University of Montana study cited survey results from 2017 and 2018, finding that about 14% of Montana adults said they used cannabis in the previous month. That's compared with 9% of adults nationally. The real test will come in the summer when millions of tourists visit Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks. We'll keep watching Montana and bringing you updates. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Back to you, Nicole. Yo, like, like real talk, like how does a state with 100 people? Can somebody answer that question for me? You, you broke up, Rico. Finish, say it again. How does a state with 100 people run out of weed? And no tourists right now. Grizzly bears, they smoke. The fuck? I mean, everyone's smoking up there. <laughs> shout out, shout out to Grizzly Peak. <laughs> Some serious medical need in Montana, okay? <laughs> What did you say, Nicole? You broke up too. How much did they grow? I mean, the the of it, you know, a lot of these in every state when we go through legalization, there's like the fucking cannabis gnomes that are supposed to show up with genetics and all of a sudden weeds here and there's all this stuff like you just like enter product into the system. So I mean, how prepared were they in general? And then let's put into consideration that if we have the conversation going towards um, you know, the the rec market um in that area, all of the surrounding states, where do they stand to? And so be be conscientious of um, opportunities that do exist to help the other markets. Quick note, there are some caps on uh, cultivation, and so there are limits on how much they can they can stock up the supplies, so that's part of the problem. And just to touch on Nicole's uh, gnome theory, um, I do know of federal judges that have said at people sentencing that the federal government pays me to believe that marijuana is dropped out of the sky in crates. Yep. Everyone just turns a blind eye. Let's keep smoking the news. I was going to say that when we were registering uh, genetics in Colombia, uh, the country, the government just basically said that they would, you know, turn a blind eye to wherever this cultivar came in from. So really interesting tactic it is a cannabis gnome shout out to montana <laughs> so it's like don't next it's like don't ask don't tell oh my god nope 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 not going there so in an industry full of trolls posting up daily under the bridge this fellow dope dad is hitting the high road that's right he's the host and co-creator of the new show with sensi mag and a fellow seeker of truth when it comes to finding out the true origins of christmas coming straight out of covid quarantine in the purple state of texas 
Up next is Stone Slade. Glad to have you back, brother. What you got for us, man? Good to be back, Rico. Thank you for the the introduction there and uh, and our our fight to uh, to uncover the truth about Christmas. Uh, anyway, my story today comes from good old Kyle Yeager at MJ Moment. Iowa Democratic senators made a move on Wednesday to put the question of cannabis legalization where it should be before voters on the state's ballot. The proposed constitutional amendment said that the possession, growth, cultivation, uh, processing, manufacture, preparation, packaging, transfer, consumption, and retail, sale, and purchase of cannabis or products created from or including cannabis by persons 21 years of age or older shall be lawful. Last month, Senators Joe Bauckham, Janet Peterson, and Sarah Trone Garriott, all Democrats, unveiled their cannabis reform plan because they say inaction on the issue in the GOP-controlled legislature meant that they needed to pursue, pursue an alternative route to end prohibition. Senator Bauckham said that we're proposing this constitutional amendment for voters to decide because Republicans have repeatedly refused to engage in any meaningful debate about marijuana reform. He went on to say that Governor Kim Reynolds is strongly opposed to marijuana reform and that the 92 Republicans currently in the Iowa General Assembly, there's not a single member that has expressed support for, for regulating marijuana like alcohol. Senator Trone Garriott added that marijuana is easily accessible for adults in neighboring states. Because of that, Iowa still has all the challenges of the issue, but we get none of the benefits. Under the proposal, the Iowa Alcoholic Beverage Division would uh, regulate the cannabis program. And in order to get constitutional amendment on the ballot, the General Assembly will need to pass the proposal twice during two separate sessions, meaning the soonest voters will get to weigh in would be during the November 2024 election. It also uh, obviously means that the Republican-controlled legislator will have to get on board with the idea of a referendum on the issue. The Democrats' plan is to pass the measure during the 100-day session that starts this month and then again in 2023 so that voters can have a chance to hit it in 24. GOP legislative leaders and the governor have maintained staunch opposition to reform efforts in the past which advocates say is partly the reason that even Iowa's medical cannabis program is especially limited compared to other states. And I got to say, I feel you here in Texas, Iowa. Senator Janet Peterson said Iowa's outdated old school drug policies are failing Iowans in rural parts of the state and urban areas as well. It's time to move forward with better drug policies that uplift Iowans instead of criminalizing them. Republicans have said time and time again that during the constitutional amendment debates that they trust the voters to decide. Well, we believe it's time to trust Iowa voters. Let's give Iowans the freedom to vote on this issue. I encourage Iowans to contact their legislators in the coming days to urge them to push for the debate and passage of this constitutional amendment in the upcoming session. And I couldn't agree with you more, Senator Peterson. This is exactly what all states should be doing. Stop playing political games like we touched on yesterday. These assholes know that cannabis isn't the scary devil. They painted it to be. The truth is out there. Let the people decide. I'm Stone Slade reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I was just going to lose all that all that tax revenue to the surrounding states. It's really, really easy to get to uh, dispensaries right on the border there, especially in the quad cities. Yeah, Texas, too. Unfortunately, I live in the middle of Texas, so the, the outskirts are pretty far. <laughs> I was going to make a, a joke about uh, skirts, but um, I decided to take it to myself. Keep it to myself. Keep it to myself. He lives well, in the heartland, Rico. In the heartland. Since, 
seem to have jokes about this headline. We'll go ahead and pop so much for that stone. Um, up next, we have Eric Hislareda. He's an industry writer, brand building consultant, and a fifth generation California farmer and farmer's friend. What do you have for us today, Eric? Hi, Nicole. Hey, everybody. Uh, great to be here today. My headline is from the Las Vegas Review Journal, and it's Clark County Preparing for Cannabis Lounges. Um, so why do we care what's happening in Clark County? Because that's where Vegas is located. And what happens in Vegas, especially if it involves entertainment lifestyle, definitely does not stay in Vegas. It goes everywhere, influences the entire country. Um, so the article sets it up like this. Clark County officials are closely monitoring the state's efforts to regulate cannabis consumption lounges, a process that will largely inform how the county sets its own expectations for the industry's expansion. When they open this year, Nevada is expected. Following approval in the state legislature last summer, lounges will provide locals and tourists with places to consume cannabis. But first, the state's Cannabis Compliance Board must finalize regulations, which local jurisdictions may then strength, uh, strengthen if they wish. While County planning remains in the early stages. Commissioners on Tuesday provided insight into factors they are likely to address before social use venues open, raising concerns about potentially having to use county funds to pay for increases in staffing and seeking ways to hasten investigations of odor complaints. The article then gets into some nuts and bolts about what issues are still at play and how city and county officials are planning to address them. Uh, quoting here, consumption lounges will be allowed to either be attached or directly adjacent to an existing dispensary or to be separate independent establishments, and they'll be licensed by state and local governments. It's unclear how many licenses uh, will ultimately be given out. Initially, there will be 20 for independent lounges, or how many will be in unincorporated areas, um, officials said. While the county is beginning to address venue regulations, the city of Las Vegas is watching the state's process in order to determine what it may need to update in its existing ordinance. In May of 2019, city lawmakers approved lounges within city limits, but the state legislature barred local governments from licensing any such business for two years while the state studied the issue. Uh, the city has already identified minor changes it must make to its ordinance, and it should have a timeline for formally amending its bill following the state Cannabis Compliance Board's adoption of final regulations, according to city spokesman Jace Radke. So there are a few other nuggets in here that suggest that the state, the county, and city <clears throat> are ready to cooperate and make this happen as fast as possible. And although no specific timeline is given, as the article says, expect it to happen this year, because every destination, especially if you're Vegas, wants to be ready for the rush of visitors many in travel tourism are expecting uh, this summer. And that's what I got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thanks for having me out. I say this all the time. I'm going to keep saying it. I wish we had as many cannabis lounges as we have alcohol bars. I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but it sure would be nice. One day, fingers crossed. <laughs> it needs to go that direction. I really can't wait to see to. what Planet 13 does with, with their consumption lounge because I've heard such amazing things about their taxi lounge that doesn't even allow for the taxi drivers to consume cannabis and how immaculate that is. I can only imagine what they will make for their customers. Planet 13. Jason, I interviewed him. Uh, yeah, Jason, I interviewed yeah, uh, Larry in uh, June, I think, and he was talking about that. And they're, yeah, this is going to be just off the charts. Wait, what's the taxi lounge? They, they have a lounge for drivers that's like like a relaxing lounge for when they drop people off and they, that way they can wait for them. And it's supposed to be like one of the most immaculate lounges in all of Las Vegas. Oh, it man. Kinda helps, it it kind of helps when Larry is a uh, former politician. 
and he's a heavy hitter in uh, Vegas. I, <laughs> he can do what the fuck that he that is amazing that they have that taxi lounge. I've had so many taxi drivers in Vegas that were drunk. I can't tell we can have cannabis being smoked anywhere that you can smoke a cigarette because at the end of the day that's going to be a big 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 play because we should be able to consume it if you're allowed to smoke cigarette there we should be able to smoke cannabis nicole technically we have that now you just can't get caught i agree God with damn you. it jason I agree new york is the only place that we can do that i think this will hopefully help continue to normalize this like and take the stigma away once there's people aren't having to like hide to consume cannabis. Yeah, like we should be able to smoke weed at a bar in the smoking area. You know, I should be able to go with my friends who want to drink and we should be able to consume uh, cannabis in the smoking area. 100%. All right, let's head on to the next story. And he's a Fresno-based protector of freedom and justice with a pension for challenging the status quo. Never afraid to debate on the highest of stages, no matter the opponent. Jackie McGowan and Gavin Newsom, line them up. <laughs> this former raptivist rep- represents the BIPOC conservative tone way too off left out of the conversation. Nicholas Wildstar, what you got for us this morning, my brother? Hey, hey, Rico. Happy New Year, State of Cannabis crew. No matter how you celebrated the holiday, getting your party on is definitely on the agenda this year. Yahoo Finance published a press release from cannapreneur Gary Vaynerchuk, a.k.a. Gary V, announcing the inaugural Green Street Cannabis Festival, complete with hip-hop and culinary stars. The Green Street announcement says their festival will be on the dates of May 13th and 14th in Los Angeles and will feature the city's top restaurants, the state's leading cannabis brands, and the world's top entertainers all brought together to celebrate the cannabis community. Day number one of the festival will be a VIP-hosted event by Gary V at the 67,000-square-foot Green Street Building in downtown L.A. and feature a live performance by world-renowned freestyle artist Harry Mack. People want to either be educated or be entertained, and we're going to do both, says Vaynerchuk. Day two of the festival will be at an historic outdoor downtown Los Angeles venue and will feature performances from local artists, another one-of-a-kind freestyle performance by Harry Mack, a keynote speech from Gary V, plus a special performance from Grammy and Academy Award-winning artist Juicy J. <laughs> a dozen of the city's best restaurants and chefs, including Yeasty Boys, Afters Ice Cream, Gusto Green, and Uncle Polly's Deli, to name a few, will be serving up select dishes to satisfy munchy cravings of festival goers. Traditionally, cannabis festivals have the most basic of foods like funnel cake and trash pizza. But we know our guests would like better options, says fashion designer John Buscemi who is in charge of drawing up the menu. Contemporary artist Cody Hudson was brought on to create and establish the visual identity of the Green Street Festival. It's been a wonderful project, says Cody. I'm just really looking forward to bringing cannabis food and music together in one space and tying them all together visually. Weed is the headliner of the festival, 
Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We've been to countless cannabis events across the country, and we as attendees want to smoke weed with our friends and check in with the community, eat delicious food, and then be entertain- entertained. In that order, says Green Street President Rama Mayo. In addition to having world-class cannabis food and music, the festival will have all-day outdoor activities, including custom games, lounge areas, carnival rides, interactive art exhibits, and a vendor village um, featuring custom art and installations by Greg, Mike, and ABV Gallery. I don't know who those last two people are or many of the people named in this article, but Juicy J is going to sell tickets. As someone who hasn't ever been to a cannabis festival, this one by far sounds like one of the best for someone to attend. That's a very important quality to have during the coronavirus era where people are either too afraid to go places or being told not to. Speaking of which, with LA requiring Vax passports to go anywhere and everywhere, it'll be interesting to see how the Green Street Cannafest will be able to work that in or work around it. Reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour, this is Nick Wildstar, aka the Governor. Speak now or forever hold your peace. I want to speak. Governor, thank you for that story. As an event producer, I'm just, what the fuck is going on? How, I mean, the Grammys just got canceled. And this sounds like a really expensive event to produce. Juicy J is anti anti vaccine, vaccine, anti everything, but he is very much pro ecstasy. I think that, you know, with the sponsorship fees that they have for this Green Street Fest, they will definitely have the budget to support the talent and whatever expense um, uh, may go into producing this. I saw the, the lighter sponsorship is $15,000. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with you, Brandon. Um, I know a company I'm affiliated with is doing one of the, one of the higher, uh, higher activations, and uh, they're definitely going to have the budget to execute on this, and it's going to be an amazing, uh, amazing event, which I'm going to be looking forward to attending. And uh, congratulations to Green Street and Rama and, and Josh on, on the brand-new opening of their uh, building downtown. Well, we're going to go ahead and jump from that headline. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Um, our next correspondent is Mr. Brandon Dorsky. He is the CEO at Fruits Lab, a cannabis and intellectual property attorney here in California. What do you have for us today, Brandon? Uh, Thanks for having me. Today my headline is NFL says Cowboys player can't fight drug test suspension. This is about Dallas Cowboys offensive lineman Lael Collins, who appears to have abandoned his efforts to avoid a suspension for trying to bribe a drug test collector. He had 30 days to file an amended complaint to add additional facts and correct deficiencies in his first petition to the court challenging his temporary suspension. He found himself in court disputing a five-game suspension that was handed down after the league learned he tried to bribe a testing official and then repeatedly failed to appear for a test over a month-long period. Players actually, this was news to me, cannot be suspended for a positive marijuana test under the NFL's collective bargaining agreement. But Collins' wiggle was different. He missed multiple tests, and you can be suspended for that. Collins' appeal was upheld by an arbitrator, which led to him filing the suit in October against the NFL, its management counsel, and Commissioner Roger Goodell, claiming they had violated his contract and misrepresented his testing and discipline history and violated other league policies. The NFL just filed a motion to dismiss, and the court granted that motion because Collins could not demonstrate a likelihood of success on the merits. There was other legal jargon in the article, but basically the gist of the story is 
Don't run from your drug test in the NFL if all you're going to do, if all you're going to test positive for is marijuana. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. Yeah, I, I covered that story um, um, at the beginning of it, I think like a month or a month and a half ago. Like, it was very, very, very sketchy, and I thought that he was going to get out of this, but damn, like, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> Stupid. I mean, at least amend the complaint and uh, show up in court to further delay the suspension. I mean, he might, he could potentially miss the playoffs, I suppose. He was avoiding the test because he was smoking boof. Right, Jason? <laughs> well, if you're smoking boof, you could probably pass the test because you wouldn't have any THC in there. You're smoking hemp. Well, he might, yeah, he might have been. Yeah, he is, he is out of Dallas, man. He's probably smoking that D8. But we did get to the understanding that the Delta 8 will still get you to test positive. 100%. Oh, you can't be smoking boof and still test positive, Jason. There is no truth in boof. Wow. Well, what a great show. This was, I think, one of our tighter shows. Uh, great job, uh, correspondents. Audience, if you missed any of our show today, make sure and catch the replay here on Clubhouse or find us anywhere you get your podcasts. A, th- a big thank you to all of the correspondents for digging through all the headlines and bringing us just what we need to know. Thank you so much, Nicole and Rico, for co-producing the show for me. And thank you, audience, for making the state of Cannabis News Hour, the stickiest show here on Clubhouse and in the universe. That's a good tag of papers. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye.